I'm not drinking coffee this morning. I'm drinking tea. What? Who are you? <laughs> what is this new weird religion that you've joined? Tea. <laughs> Funny thing is that up until like maybe five or six years ago, I never drank coffee at all. Oh, wow. I was a late coffee bloomer too. So you drank tea? Drank tea exclusively. And a couple years before that, I actively did not drink anything caffeinated for probably around a year. I just got my energy for water, which is a <laughs> phenomenal thing. What? Those we will refer to as the dark ages. <laughs> <laughs> and then somewhere along the way, I was in a really great coffee shop and I decided to get some espresso drink and I kind of got hooked on everything about drinking coffee. I just love the experience. Mm -hmm. So I've been like a cup a day person for a while, but I'm about to do this thing tomorrow that I've been telling you about for a while. Oh, yes. <laughs> Where someone's going to like lay hands on you, right? Yes. Someone is going to lay hands on me. <laughs> I like how you put it that way. It's very suggestive. <laughs> it's called a manual lymphatic drainage massage. Yeah, lay hands on you sounds way better than that. It really does. <laughs> For any listeners who know about this, I would be curious if you've had experiences on your own. I've never had one before, but it was a Christmas present. And I've had to reschedule it like four times because you're supposed to do a detox for 24 hours beforehand and then 48 hours afterwards. And it's no caffeine, no alcohol, no sugar, no fatty foods, basically my whole diet, <laughs> especially in the last month with a lot of drive throughs <laughs> So wait, I have a question then. Yes. <laughs> Are the benefits of this lymphatic draining massage actually benefits of the massage or because you cut out all this crap that you've been eating for the last couple days? It's a great question. <laughs> What are the effects that you're going to be feeling? I have no idea what to expect. It's supposed to be these sort of light sweeping motions, but they're directing whatever the fluid buildup is that happens in your lymphatic system. Hmm. So I have no idea how I'm going to feel. I don't know if I'm going to notice it. I might be drained. I might feel great. Who knows? Yeah. I'm curious. I'm curious to hear. It's nice to finally have 72 hours where I could do a detox. It was like, how many times I told you, I was like, yeah. I don't, I don't have 72 hours to do this right now. Like I will, I will literally die if I try to do that. So I'm drinking tea today and then no caffeine tomorrow. Okay. I'm just waiting for COVID to catch up with me, man, because I feel like I'm on borrowed time at the opera house. We're in the middle of a production and last night for a performance, basically the entire brass section, except for one player and entire flute section were out some with covid and some with just being very cautious about the proximity and because they all play unmasked blah 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 yeah i sit right in front of the trombones and right next to the horns so they're blowing all over me the whole time i'm wearing a mask but i'm just like <laughs> you're in the splash zone i'm in the splash zone <laughs> But I'm at peace with it. I'm testing. I'm still negative as of when we're recording this. So yeah, I'm glad you haven't gotten hit by the, the stick yet. <laughs> I'm knocking on all the wood right now. Welcome to the Viola Centric Podcast. We are two curious violists creating a safe place to have authentic and challenging conversations in the professional music world. I'm Liz. And I'm Steph. Let's jump in the deep end. 
well, we've done it. We've just about completed another season. It's amazing. I can't believe it. It's been a lot of learning this season. Yes. For us to figure out what it looks like to do both our playing job and this podcasting fun endeavor. Absolutely. I was just talking with one of our season one guests yesterday, Molly Sharp, about this very thing. I kind of knew that this season of life was going to be kind of an experiment. All of it was just going to feel like an experiment. It was the first year where we were going to be back to work, but we didn't know what back to work was going to look like in September. We knew that we really wanted to keep this going because we were feeling so lit up by the experience of season one. So the experiment for us has been how do we make it work while balancing it with the rest of our life now that life is sort of resuming this normal pace and it's had its ups and downs. Mm -hmm. It's had its challenges. Mm -hmm. Trying to balance the time. And for those of you who listen regularly, you know that we've had times where we've had to take a break <laughs> and, and release a little bit on a modified schedule. But we both really still love these conversations. We just enjoy having them. We enjoy talking with people about all these various things that are just integral to our lives as musicians. And it's been so much fun. And I'm so glad that we put together this season. I'm really proud of us. Yeah, it's taken a lot of really asking ourselves. It just feels so funny to talk about this two years, like the second year into something, but like asking yourself why you're doing it in the first place. Yeah. And remembering how fun it was. Yeah. And I think that when things get tough, the first instinct is to abandon it. Yes. And then the second for me is like, whoa, whoa, wait. We started this for a reason, and it was really fun, and it still continues to be fun. Totally. And I love, I love, love, love that we created this thing from nothing, and that people are enjoying it. Absolutely. And we're enjoying doing it. You bring up a great point, because that's the other thing that I think a lot of people are experiencing right now, not just in the music world, but burnout. Oh, yes. Is so real. Mm. And I know that when I experience burnout, which I have experienced a few times this year, my instinct is to just like shut everything down. And that was another thing that my conversation with Molly yesterday was so helpful was she said she knows she's experiencing burnout now. And so she knows that making decisions is not something you want to do. And it's just really interesting to think about. Mm -hmm. All of us are navigating the balance. You mentioned that we remembered why we did it. Mm -hmm. And I'm so glad that we have put together a season two, and that we will put together a season three. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So you're hearing it first here, there will be a season three. Yeah. And you know what, this ties so beautifully into something that we've talked about you and I about one of the overarching themes of all of our conversations this year and something that all of us musicians have to go head to head with at some point in our careers, things become difficult. And it's hard to remember why you started doing this in the first place. You really have to ask yourself why we choose to do what we do as musicians and what a role is in society. And a lot of our guests spoke to this very thing. It's just been beautiful conversation after beautiful conversation about why we do this as musicians and why it's important. Absolutely. And I think what we're sort of uncovering throughout these conversations is that those foundational values for why we make music can get lost in the process of trying to be the 
best musician we can, working really hard, especially in freelance life. We just get so overwhelmed with a lot of details. We have to juggle a lot of balls in the air, guys. (laughs) You all know it. And even if you don't do this professionally as a musician, the discipline of learning music is a challenging one. And I think it's easy to lose sight of these bigger values playing a role in how we lead our lives as musicians. And I think that was an interesting exploration and theme that came up multiple times this year, too. Mm -hmm. And along those lines, you have all these students who are learning music as a profession. How do you preserve the why for those young, innocent little souls? (laughs) Before the world like beats them on the head (laughs) with its cudgel of truth. That was some visceral imagery stuff. (laughs) It it was very clear in my mind, that imagery. (laughs) I can can see it too. (laughs) Yes. I really love that we're able to hear this season from multiple individuals who are involved at the collegiate level who are really making strides to innovate and help move that institutional progress forward. And it is hard. These institutions have been around for a long time. And the process of learning a musical instrument to a level of proficiency that allows you the honor of doing it as a profession, it's a process that's been essentially similar for hundreds of years. So we're talking about big change But as with life, I think about this a lot, we can only affect change in our little spheres of influence. And so the people who are doing that work, they're doing it. And those little bits of change in all these different little pockets, that's going to be what helps move things forward. Mm -hmm. So we've each gone through and re-listened to a lot of the episodes of the season, and we've come up with moments we felt were just really poignant. And so we're each going to talk about a couple of those moments for us. So Liz, you want to do your first one? Sure. I think it actually blends really nicely into what we were just discussing with these themes. The wonderful Dr. Molly Gebrian. She's so great. Yeah, we had a two part episode with her. And it was just so engaging to talk energizing to talk with her as someone who is not only a brilliant musician, and a wonderful educator, but also has a degree in neuroscience and really uses neuroscience as a focus for her education. Something that really stuck out for both of us, Steph, was understanding that when you are experiencing failure and struggle, that means that you are learning. I needed to hear that. And I needed to hear it again when I listened through because I just thought that was such a huge thing. We get caught up in the idea that if we can't do something, then we're just somehow lesser than. The reframe is, no, 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 everybody goes through this. Oh, yeah. It's a good thing. I can't tell you how many times I've said that to my students since we had that conversation. Totally. And I wish somebody had said that to me much earlier in the process. Yeah, absolutely. The other thing that I think was really important to know from her was that learning takes place during your breaks. Yeah, that was huge. You have this period of struggle. You're doing the work you can to sort of overcome that. But then you have to take rest for your brain to process all that information. And that is so true in any aspect of life to apply it to instrumental practice. It just makes so much sense. (laughs) 
So when we're talking about how to prepare students, how we can take this knowledge as professionals or adult learners out there in the world as instrumentalists, understanding our brain function, it seems so simple, but it's really wonderful. And I also just want to mention Susanna Klein, too, because I think she had some excellent points in her episode as well about the process of learning that tie in so nicely to all of this, particularly with her idea that excellence can be something that's more about the human being as a whole, rather than just the sort of dry practice of excellence of technical proficiency, which I think is important to mention. Mm-hmm. I want to say one more thing about Molly Gebrian, because she shared an exciting update with us that Oxford University Press contacted her about writing a book on the neuroscience of practicing. She went through the whole proposal and submission and review process. And long story short, she has a signed contract and it will come out in maybe late 2023 or early 2024. And oh my goodness. I want that book. How revolutionary is it going to be to have that kind of resource? Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, it's going to be incredible. I wish I had that resource when I was in music school. Absolutely. Congratulations, Molly. Yes. We're so excited that you're going to be sharing your work with the world in this way. Well, one of the episodes that really spoke to me was our episode with Brian Balmages, mm. who is one of my friends from college, who has become such a successful composer and clinician that you cannot say his name in music educator circles without people being like, oh, Brian Balmages. I feel like a celebrity. Like when I tell my students, I'm like, <laughs> I'm friends with Brian Balmages. Brian Balmages is my friend. I, I text him. <laughs> They're like, oh my gosh. <laughs> and he's just such a great guy. Brian talks about the why of what we do and why we do music so beautifully. Yes. And one of the moments in his conversation was about how he discovered that he knew he wanted to be a composer, but he thought he wanted to be one type of composer and didn't want to get pigeonholed in the way of writing for younger audiences, younger musicians. And he was comparing himself to big name composers like Jennifer Higdon, Eric Whitaker. And he was just examining the why of why that bothered him. And he came to the conclusion that he is not those people. They are not the same. He has lots of different qualities that he felt like he could tap into uniquely Hmm. to speak to younger audiences. And that's what guided him to his niche of writing for developing ensembles, you know, school orchestra, school band. I think we all do. We compare our careers to other people's careers and we think, gosh, I wish I had a career like that person. I wish I was doing what that person is doing. And we are none of us like any other of us. Yes. So to find a career path that works for you and speaks to your why is really something that we can all aspire to and not to feel pigeonholed like I have to do what this other person is doing to be successful. And the other thing that really spoke to me was when he was talking about our role as musicians, that it's a very vital and solemn duty to help people express their emotions in times of strife, in times of pandemic, in times of revolution, because we do something that's beautiful, and we need beauty in a less than beautiful world. That really got me when I was re-listening to that one. 
Me too. I randomly was just scrolling through the audiograms on our Instagram feed. And the way that he says how much our world is in desperate need of beauty is just go listen to it. Yeah, that's all I gotta say. We'll link all these episodes in our episode notes, but you can find them in our feed. That was a moment for me that I'm going to remember probably for the rest of my days. 100% likewise. And just to update you on what Brian's doing, Brian has this amazing, he's doing all the things. <laughs> this guy is, is here, there and everywhere. I was texting with him yesterday and he was on a plane over <laughs> Kansas, but he has written a piece of music that's kind of a, a tie into a previous piece that he wrote. It's called Kiev 2022. And he has published it and made it available so that all proceeds of this composition are going to relief efforts in Ukraine. He has raised over $50,000 so far Amazing to go to Ukraine. I'm getting a little choked up just talking about this. And it's been scheduled to be performed over 200 times worldwide by groups of all levels, elementary, middle, high school, adult community groups, professional ensembles. There's a hashtag you can follow called hashtag make music for Ukraine. And you can find out where groups are performing his work. You can download and be a part of it. It's a great illustration of composers using music as a tool to express and to process what's happening in their lives. And it's just a beautiful example of a gift we can give to kids who may not be able to understand or process these really heavy issues of war, mm. of people's humanity being taken away because they live in a war zone. It's just a beautiful thing. And it's a beautiful reflection on what we have to offer as musicians. Yes. Thank you to Brian for doing that work. Yeah. And we'll make sure that in the show notes, there's information on how to access that project. I think that actually kind of flows nicely into the next episode I was going to mention in revisiting the season, which was with Laura Colgate, who is a co-founder of the Boulanger Initiative, which is an organization that promotes music by women and non-binary composers, people who are learning composition now and creating databases and resources for finding music by women and non-binary composers in a way that has not really been accessible before. And when Stephanie asks her in the episode about how she got interested in this work, she very eloquently talks about music is this tool to connect and the idea that for the most part, the repertoire we perform in the, and I'm using air quotes, classical music tradition is only really connecting with half of the population works against humanity, is the way Laura put it. And I just love that. So this idea of inclusion came up a lot in this season. And I think it's because it was a hot topic in our world, and an important topic in our world. And I think that part was something that really stuck out for us with Laura and with some of our other guests. The other thing that I thought was really great talking with Laura, and this was referenced in other episodes too, was how we make performances more connected. And so we were asking what we do going back to in-person audiences. We had sort of this renaissance of virtual performance art as classical musicians. Mm-hmm. 
not just the music itself. We really had to be creative and think outside the box with the visual aspect, the programming itself, how we presented the content and all of those things. And so how to translate that back into the real world and in a live concert hall. Music is the vehicle that connects us and giving people this opportunity to come together and build community through music is something that is really important right now. That's a conversation I think that's happening a lot. And I know we had other guests on the season that referenced this as well, like Adriana Lonares, who really literally the episode was titled Craving Community because that was a central theme for her. One of the other episodes that really spoke to me and this transformation that the orchestra has gone through through pandemic. We've gone through virtual, and now we're reimagining what it looks like to put music out there for community consumption. And one of the guests who we really enjoyed speaking with was Luke Frazier, who's the music director and conductor of the American Pops Orchestra. They have really been innovating throughout this whole pandemic time. Mm -hmm. And Luke is absolutely the brains behind that. And you can hear that in our conversation with him. He is just bursting with ideas. One of the biggest ones comes right from the title, his grocery store test. What a great litmus test if you really want to know what the community is thinking. And his whole point is that if you go into a grocery store and you ask random shopper number one, what is an orchestra? What is a symphony? What is a sonata? You're going to get a certain answer, and it's not what we all who are in the business assume that everyone thinks it is. Yep. And so it just really speaks to knowing where your community is at, what they want from you, instead of trying to force feed them what you think they should listen to. (laughs) Yeah. And he's just such a charismatic individual, and he's so thoughtful. He has thought these things through. He's done the research. He's got the numbers. And he really asks the hard questions, like, what are we spending our money on? Right. If we're purporting to want to reach kids, why are we going about it in the traditional way that is much less efficient and reaches fewer kids than the way that he's envisioned doing it? I just found it so refreshing. Totally. Yeah. He was unfiltered. Yeah. Which we need. Yeah. We need someone who's willing to say the things that need to be said. Mm -hmm. That's a hard thing to do, to get real. (laughs) And Luke did a lot of that in the best way. Yes. So Luke has got all kinds of things going on right now. A PBS special, which is going to air on June 4th. And it's all in celebration of Pride Month. So incredible, incredible performers. The music is great. The Indigo Girls are on there. Just set your DVRs and thank me later. (laughs) There was one more episode I was thinking that I would reference, which is a more recent episode that we recorded with Tanner Gus, who is the podcaster for the Happy Musicians podcast. And Tanner's episode was just full of those full body nod kind of acknowledgements. And it's really refreshing to speak with someone who's sort of in the next generation of freelancers coming up in the business. And I think what really stuck out for me with him were two things. One was that he coined the phrase, the magic merit machine. We're giving him trademark on that. And what he meant by that was that the agreements or the understanding, the internalized messaging that we receive over the course of our training is if you train really, really hard and become as proficient as possible on your instrument, then this magic merit machine will award you with work. 
a lot of people go down that path and find deep dissatisfaction with their jobs. Tanner's exploration has been to figure out when people really seem to have found a joyful place with their careers, what is it that got them there? Mm -hmm. And more often than not, I think the central theme is that people find what really makes them happy about making music as a profession or not. But what is it that they want to say with their music? We're not trained to do that, traditionally speaking. So I think it's really interesting to consider you could ultimately start asking these questions from a very young age for students as teachers. And practically, one of the suggestions he came up with that I really enjoyed was this idea that in school, everybody is responsible for creating projects on their own, learning how to produce an album through their recital, which it's so funny because we both had this sort of like cringe kind of response, like, oh, I wouldn't want my senior recital on social media. But what if everybody just got used to embracing the idea that your growth is out there for the world to see? And it did get me thinking about album recording artists. You know, I've just recently watched Respect, the Aretha Franklin movie. Oh my gosh. She started recording albums very young and they were not successful. It wasn't until she found the sound that worked for her Mm. that she started to have success. But there's still this whole body of work. I forgot to mention with Laura Colgate, she teaches this entrepreneurship in in the arts class at University of Maryland. And all of the students in that class have to come up with a project. They put the business proposal together, they figure out the budget, they figure out how they'll finance it, they create a website. And essentially, when they're done with that project, they could go ahead and launch it. And she said many of her students have. And Tanner threw that idea out there. Why don't we do those things? I think we should. Mm -hmm. I think this idea of individualized understanding of our purpose as musicians is something that also came up more than once this season. Our very first episode of the season was with Drew Ford, that viola kid. And he talked about branding in a way that just made so much sense to us that we had never thought about before. It's literally just finding the thing that works for you and then sharing that with people. Mm -hmm. And if we all thought about that a little more. I think it's just very interesting to see the possibilities of taking those threads of thought further. Lots of learning this season. Mm-hmm. Hello all, Liz and Steph here. As you know, Liz and I choose our sponsors because we really and truly value authenticity. We can talk most easily about things that we love and use regularly, which is why Potter Violins is such a natural partnership. Yes, Steph and I both have been taking our violas to Potters for years because we know they're a shop that really knows about violas. Their luthiers are some of the best in the country, and I trust them completely with my wooden baby. And not only that, but I'm actually bow shopping right now, which can be overwhelming. But I always go to Potters first because I trust them to help me find the perfect one for my instrument and playing style. Yep, both Steph and I found our violas there. Bottom line is that we both love the Potters team and we're thrilled to welcome them as a season two sponsor. If you're interested in learning more about what they offer, you can find them at potterviolins.com and at potterviolins on Instagram. Season two of the Viola-Centric Podcast is sponsored by the ArcRest, a wonderfully resonant shoulder pad solution for violinists and violists. The ArcRest shoulder pad features a comfortable foam pad, 
allowing increased freedom of movement over traditional shoulder rests. You know, I had been playing with significant shoulder pain and the arc rest turned out to be just what I needed to create ease of mobility. And now I play virtually pain-free. Yes, and I switched because I was searching for a more vibrant sound. The arc rests pad provides for less dampening, freeing up resonance for a fuller sound. In fact, Liz and I are so in love with our arc rests that we decided to compose a haiku in their honor. <laughs> so Liz, you want to go first? I would love to. Delicate contact makes space for deep resonance. My viola sings. It's lovely. Thank I love you. that. How about yours? Okay, mine is playing without pain, freeing my mind and body, sound of resonance. Love that. If you would like more information, you can visit thearcrest.com. That's T-H-E-A-R-C-R-E-S-T dot com. Another thing that we had the joy of doing this year was connecting further with you. And we started a group and we met weekly for about 16, 17 weeks. It was hashtag Joy Loves Company Community. And we decided to do Susanna Klein's Practisma Journal all together with, you know, help from our friends. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's amazing how that community blossomed over the course of those 16 weeks. The idea was to go through this process of completing Susanna's Practisma Journal together. And each week we did, for the most part, discuss the various reflection prompts and action challenges that Susanna had in the journal and learned so much from each other in that way. But honestly, that community grew into so much more than just working through a practice journal together mm -hmm. that it's hard to even explain how wonderful the creation of that community was. We have members who are in all various phases of their lives right now, students, adult learners, professionals, retirees. It's just so beautiful to hear the perspectives of everyone and share that. It's been just a beautiful experience. It's been so great and such a bright spot in our lives that we want to do it again. Yes. So stay tuned because that will start sometime in the fall. Yeah. If you haven't already, join our email list and we promise we'll email you about it. Truly all are welcome mm -hmm. and the more the merrier. Mm -hmm. So we were going to do questions. Questions. We thought it would be fun to include a couple of questions in this episode as well. And by the way, we'll just put a call out there to all of you who are listening at any point, if you have questions or follow-up thoughts about the things that we're discussing on the podcast, we would really love to hear your voice. So please don't hesitate ever to reach out, right, Steph? Mm -hmm. So the first question I'm going to ask is from Laura, and it's an interesting one. She's been given the chance to study a PhD and would like to know what viola players would like to see in research. And then she gave us a couple of prompts, comparison works, historical performances, practical guides of pieces on technique and interpretation, but sort of an open-ended question about what violists might like to see done in research. It's a great question. Clearly, you already have a lot of expertise in these subjects, or you wouldn't have brought these up as possibilities. So I think what I would say actually goes along with what we've been discussing in this episode so far. And it's been figuring out what it is that you want to research. Instead of worrying 
I'm not saying that you're worrying, but instead of that being your first thought is, what will people want to read? Why don't you reframe that and say, what do I want to learn about? Mm. And really make it about your own interests, because number one, it's going to be the most interesting to you. And number two, if it's more interesting to you, then when you hit those moments of doubt and of feeling like, why am I doing this? This doesn't make any sense. You'll have that to fall back on that this is actually just a really interesting subject to you. And it will feel less like a chore and less like a paper that you're doing at someone else's behest, but at your own curiosity. Yeah, that's so great. I know that's not really the type of answer you were looking for, Laura. I'm sorry. But I really do feel strongly that you should do something that's really interesting to you. Mm -hmm. So turn that question in on yourself and say, what of these is really interesting to me? What am I curious about? Yeah, you'll be so much more jazzed to do the work. Yeah. And trying to fit ourselves into a box of what we think other people expect of us is exactly the type of thing we think can sometimes really inhibit our creative freedom in a way. So I love that stuff. That's really great. Well, hopefully that's helpful, Laura, or at least it sparks something in you. So the next question comes from Jennifer, and she asks, what were the inflection points in your lives that turned you away from your own exploration of your authentic self through music and towards someone else's or institutional belief of what a good musical self should be? Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. I know from my own work in therapy that when I have a hard time answering a starting point like this, it's probably because it started very early. And I think this is the same. I think that when we're little and we start playing music, we're just goofing around, you know, we're just like messing around, having fun. And maybe something clicks for us with a certain instrument or with our voices, and then opportunities start to present themselves. And I think that was my path with viola. I think it was this very free experience as a little person. And then you start to get more involved in your youth opportunities, orchestras, all county, whatever it might be, and lessons. And from that point, it starts to become a more competitive, disciplined endeavor. And that in itself is not a bad thing. It's good for us to be goal-driven and to take something that maybe we're passionate about and lean in and really see where it can take us. And that requires some work. We've heard guests throughout the season talk about that. Carol just recently Mm -hmm. on the most recent guest episode talked about the discipline that's required. But I think what can get lost in translation from a very early age is that anyone who's helping us along the way is really just giving us their best perspectives on how to grow as a musician. And that that's information that we can add to our toolbox, but it doesn't have to mean that we have to shift ourselves in order to fit that mold. And I think about this a lot right now, because I'm really interested in figuring out how to sort of take all the really useful messages I've been given by instructors and influences over my life and apply them in a way that feels true to me. So to answer that question, though, it would be it would be very early on. Yeah. And actually, there's a follow up question here. It says, how would each of you individually work with people to preserve their unique humanity in the midst of teaching them to meet high musical and technical demands? 
Yeah. So I started answering this a little for myself, but I love this question and it really does feel very current in my life because I'm running a music program where we are deeply invested in the whole human being that is involved in this program. We're teaching children from grades eight through 12 and some of them are very serious about music. Some of them are going to go into other professions. They're still really dedicated musicians. So we have to thread this needle of technical musical excellence, especially the ones who want to be on a competitive track, combined with acknowledging all the elements that make them human beings. And so I think that when it comes to teaching or even just having these conversations, stuff and putting them out there... It comes down to just asking questions of people that get them thinking about their own thoughts and feelings and opinions about what it is that they're doing with that music, whether it's interpreting a piece that they're learning and how it makes them feel and the story that they know behind it, what sort of motivation it gives them, or it's really the struggle that they're having in performance or some sort of hang up in the practice room. There are always ways to explore how each individual person is affected. And I think the more we are willing to ask questions, the more we are willing to acknowledge that for everyone, it's different. I think the easier it becomes to let that person's authenticity come through in what they're doing, even in a discipline like classical music, where so much of it has to be really structured. I would love to see a movement, generally speaking, at every level. And that goes for professionals all the way down to the youngest students, you know, really just all-encompassing sort of whole human work. So that's how I would answer that. That is a big question, though. What about you? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's huge. And I think that similar to you, it was probably very, very early. I think that my perspective on making music as a tool to express myself didn't develop until probably late into high school for me. Because at first it was, oh, I like to play. And then my achieving brain took over. And it became, what can I learn? How can I get into this or that orchestra? Like you mentioned, the competitive aspect of it. Mm. It's kind of wacky. It was kind of backwards. Later, it became a tool for expression for me. So it's been kind of like a reverse discovery for me. Yeah. Great question, Jennifer. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm. And of course, as you know, we have enjoyed doing this podcast. We did it. We started it out of love, but we were lucky enough to partner with a couple of really amazing businesses that have made it possible for us to keep this going. So the first of those is Potter Violins, which is a local business to us. And they take care of our violas. They're just a great bunch of people. We really gel with them. We love the people who work there. They really know what they're talking about. They really love their craft. So we feel very, very honored to be partners with them. Absolutely. And we are actually going to be doing a Facebook Live with them in June. So look out for that. 
but it's going to be about instrument shopping and bow shopping. Yeah, for those who happen to see our Facebook Live with Tigran and Aaron of the Arc Rest and Claire Stefani, it'll be similar. We'll be having some drinks and just sitting and having a chat. And I'm really excited for us to share our shopping experiences for instruments with you. Jim was an integral part of that process for both of us. And he just has so much knowledge. So it's going to be lovely to hear from him and Chris on the element of being an instrument technician. And speaking of ArcRest... ArcRest was our other sponsor for the season. And the relationship we've had with ArcRest, we're just so grateful for. It was organic from the start. We really didn't know the guys before this year, but we both have had our own journey experimenting with their product and really came to love it. And their support has been invaluable to us. This is something we really do want to keep going for the long term. Mm-hmm. And in order to do that, we really do need your support. If you're a fan of the podcast, if you love it, please consider making a little investment in our future season. You can do so through Venmo or PayPal. We keep those links on our show notes. We have some sweet merch too available and we do get part of those proceeds. So if you want to buy some merch, Lisa at Also Clef Gifts can help you out with that. You can find a link through our website. We'll also link it in the show notes. But you can also support our sponsors. So if you support our sponsors, that supports us too. Mm -hmm. We're so grateful for your support. I guess this is a good segue into talking about what's coming up for Viola Centric, since this is the end of our podcast season, but it is not the end. Right. So there will be a season three, as we alluded to before, and we're planning that. And we're trying to come up with some new ways of interacting with our community, with you. And we just love being live. (laughs) That was just really fun when we did that before. Yes. We can really get a chance to interact with real people and really connect. So as a matter of fact, we're actually going to be at the American Viola Society Festival in June in Georgia. It's at Columbus State. We have a booth there, but we also have a really special live event planned for the Saturday night of the conference, and it should be super duper fun. So if you are there, please come say hi and please come to our event and have fun with us. Yeah, we've been really lucky this season to have the opportunity when we've been out working in our community to interact with fellow musicians who have listened to the podcast and have conversations with them about the type of things we're talking about on a regular basis, which is just so inspiring. And it just has us thinking about how much bigger of a community we can grow if we're capable of having live interaction with more people outside of our DC bubble. And this is our first opportunity to do that. It's going to be really fun. I just can't wait to take this forum public and see what it's like. And we're looking forward to the possibility of doing live events in the future season too. So if you're someone that is interested in having something like that, don't hesitate to reach out to us. Mm -hmm. We would be really inspired and excited to go out there and have these conversations in person with you. So So hit us up. Yeah, hit us up. Steph, thank you for this season. Thank you for this season. (laughs) Thank all of you for listening and for your feedback, whether in person or online. And keep that coming because we are not going anywhere for now. (laughs) We'll see you in season three. Bye. Thank you so much for listening today. And thanks also to our season two sponsor, ArcRest. 
Another thanks to Alto Clef Gifts, where you can purchase viola-centric shirts and mugs and a variety of other fun items featuring our beloved Alto Clef. You can support our future episodes by supporting our sponsors through our PayPal link or Venmo and by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. And please consider sharing your favorite episodes with your music-loving friends. Our episodes are produced by Liz O'Hara Starr. The Viola-centric theme music was written and produced by J.P. Wogerman and is performed by Steph and myself. Thanks again for listening. Let's talk soon. Let's talk soon.